Chapter Sixteen of Roman Colored Detective by Grace and Harold Johnson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Chapter Sixteen. While Jules Santos talked to Muscles in front of the drug store, Father Tim parked his car in the rear of Galton's Yellow Brick Hospital. The strong antiseptic odor struck him forcibly as he entered by way of the ambulance door. He was no stranger there. He knew his way around for he had come through that entrance to the emergency room many times, at odd hours of the day and night, during the past thirteen months. It was in the emergency room that he had administered the sacrament of extreme unction for the first time as a newly ordained priest. He remembered it all vividly, as he climbed the back stairway to the second floor, and walked directly to John Linton's private room. "'Come right in, Father,' Linton called from his bed, as he saw him peeking around the half-open door. John Linton looked stronger than he was. He stretched out his hand and smiled in greeting. "'You're looking fine, Mr. Linton,' Father Tim said. "'But Father Kearney warned me not to let you talk too much. We've got to conserve that strength of yours, so you'll make a speedy recovery.' "'Father Kearney is watching over me even when he isn't here, eh?' "'That's right. I brought a book along to read a bit aloud to you. Thought we'd both enjoy it, and it would be more relaxing for you than talking.' "'That was thoughtful of you, Father.' Father Tim pulled a chair to the right side of the bed, so it would be easy for Mr. Linton to watch him as he read. He had been reading for about twenty minutes when Mary Jo and Jerry Laughlin entered the room. "'Keep right on, Father,' Mary Jo said. "'We'll enjoy listening, too.' After finishing the selection he was reading, Father Tim stood up. "'I'll leave you with Mary Jo now, Mr. Linton.' Then turning to her he said, "'May I steal Jerry away from you for a few minutes? I want to get some first-class advice.' How about going out in the sunroom with me, Jerry? Sure, Father. I won't be back, Mr. Linton, so I'll say goodbye for this time and give you my blessing. He raised his right hand and made the sign of the cross as he recited the church's prayer of blessing for the sick. John Linton blessed himself and smiled contentedly at Father Tim. Take care of yourself now, and I'll see you in a day or two. Then Father Tim joined Jerry, who had walked into the corridor. When they reached the sunroom, they found it occupied so they went out on the landing of the back stairs. Jerry put a shoulder point against the wall, took out a pipe, filled it, tamped it, and put a match to it. He looked questioningly at Father Tim. "'What do you want to know, Father?' Father Tim smiled. "'Just a bit about ballistics, criminal law, and—' "'Wait a minute, Father. I'm only a reporter.' "'A smart one, though, Jerry. Would a person owning a thirty thirty rifle have to register it?' "'Not in Ohio, Father.' There's no law in this state that requires the registration of firearms. Some municipalities require it, but Galton doesn't. The only thing the state requires is the registration of submachine guns and stuff like that. Father Tim stood in deep thought for a long moment. Supposing the rifle was found that fired the bullet at Mr. Linton, would it be possible to prove it was the same gun by comparing the shell muscles found with another fired as a test? I know they do it when they find the bullet. But can it be done with only the shell? Oh, sure. That's routine stuff now with the ballistic experts. They've done it in a number of cases and got convictions on it, too. Could they make those tests in Crescent City? No, Father. They either use the FBI, the Ohio Traveling Crime Laboratory, or Cleveland's Crime Lab. They all give good, quick service. Just for your information, the local police asked the FBI for a fingerprint report one day, a couple of weeks back and they had the report here, 
or rather at Crescent City, within six hours. That's real service. Yes, it is. I don't see how they can do it. Jerry looked at Father Tim suspiciously. Why was he asking these questions? Did he know something? What could he know that wasn't already known to everyone? When could he have picked up his information? Why, just yesterday, he spent half the day in the confessional, did the bookkeeping on the festival, and a dozen other jobs. How could he have found out information that a reporter couldn't? You know something, don't you, Father? Come on, give. There's nothing to give yet, Jerry. When the story does break, I think you'll be right in the middle of it. Good, that's the way I like it. Father Tim looked down through the window at the landing between the first and second floor. An intern, a stethoscope dangling from his white coat pocket, was talking earnestly with a pretty nurse. Let's suppose for a minute, the priest went on, that I felt sure I knew who had murdered Mr. Blake, knocked you out, and shot Mr. Linton. Now this is not much more than a feeling, let's say, borne out by a few almost intangible facts that point to one party. Each little fact alone means nothing, but taken together they do seem to point to one man as the murderer. What can I do? Have you got the motive figured out? No, not yet. That point bothers me greatly, and I need the rifle that fired the shot which wounded Mr. Linton. Jerry laughed. For a minute I thought you had something, but if you have no motive and no rifle, you haven't got much of a suspect. The cops could use that rifle, too. Then they'd have a case. That's true, Jerry. Have the police checked on people in the vicinity who have purchased a thirty thirty rifle during the past few years? Yes, I talked to Officer Helm about that. He said they had, but it produced no results. The trouble is, someone could have moved into town with a thirty thirty they bought somewhere else. It might have been purchased either new or second-hand. To find that rifle is like looking for the proverbial needle. Father Tim frowned and stood thinking. Then he asked, What could be done if it could be pointed out that in all probability a certain man had committed the crime and undoubtedly had the rifle hidden in his house? You could get a warrant for his arrest, Jerry replied promptly. The law is that if a felony has actually been committed, you can get a warrant for the arrest of any person you believe did the crime. Of course, you have to have some grounds for accusing the person, and you have to be acting in good faith. But if you are wrong, you aren't liable for civil damages. Would a warrant have to be procured to search the house for the rifle? No, not if the search was made by the police. That was decided in a case I listened in on two months ago over in Crescent City. But of course, you can't go around searching every house in town, Father. Jerry grinned. I know. We've got to be sure it's the right house. Father Tim paused. How well do you know the hardware men here and in Crescent City? Well enough to get them to check their books and see who might have bought a certain item during the past year or two? I know them well enough, Father, for that, anyway. What do you want me to find out? I'd like to know if anyone purchased a telescopic sight for a rifle. For a moment, Jerry looked wide-eyed and open-mouthed at Father Tim. Phew, I see what you mean. I'll get right after it. I'll try Harry's gun shop here and Winter's sports shop in Crescent City, too. Yes, do that, Father Tim said quietly. And thanks, Jerry. I'll go tell Mary Jo that I can't take her home in my car. She's not going for a couple of hours anyway. Oh, well, she'll get home. She might even call Bill. He gave Father Tim a grin. He'd be ready and willing, I'm sure. Yeah, I know. So would a lot of other guys. 
Father Tim was halfway up the stairs to the second floor of the rectory when the doorbell rang. He leaned heavily against the wall and waited. He was tired, more tired than he had realized. All this added worry over Bill, together with the extra work of the festival, was pulling him down. He hoped the call was not for him. The cold draft of air up the stairway felt good. As far as he was concerned, this extremely hot weather could end any time. He heard Miss Kearney's footsteps coming towards the stairway. She knew he was waiting as she had seen him on her way to answer the door. She gave him a wry smile. You have a visitor in the vestibule, John Patrick O'Rourke. What does he want? I didn't inquire, but from the breathless expectancy, I imagine he's carrying a message to Garcia. Father Tim walked wearily to the vestibule. Hello, Muscles. Hi, Father. If Mr. Santos asked you if I told you he gave me a kick in the pants, you'd tell him I did, but he didn't. What in the world are you talking about? Muscles swallowed. It's like this, Father. I met Lippy Santos. Mr. Santos. Yeah, Mr. Santos. I met him down by the bowling alley, and he said I was a stoolie for you, and I was scared because you know what that means. I'm afraid I don't, Muscles. What's a stoolie? A stool pigeon, an informer. They're in the comics. When guys like Mr. Santos or Big Dutch or Rocky find out about them, it's pretty awful. You'll tell him when you see him. I'm no stoolie, won't you? Those guys don't mess, Father. Father Tim smiled reassuringly. I'm sure they don't. So I'll tell Mr. Santos you are not an informer. Now what was all this about a kick? Muscle scratched the bumpy curve of his skull behind his ears. I don't get it either, Father, but he said to tell you that he had kicked me in the pants. But he didn't, honest. Father Tim pushed his lower lip out, but his eyes were smiling. I think he meant that he had told you something for your own good. That's it, Father, he did. He said when I'm big, if I want to play cards with a pal, that would be okay. But if my pal has a friend from Pittsburgh, that I don't know, for me not to play with him, because the friend might be a teacher, and I'd lose all my money. He said it was adult education. I see Mr. Santos is a humorist. Didn't sound funny to me. I suppose not. It might if you were older. Old people sure crack corny jokes. No laughs in him. Muscles wrinkled his nose. Then he said my pal would call up and ask if I wanted a chance to win my money back. And when I said I did, he'd say he had another friend, a teacher from Detroit, and I'd lose my money again. He said never to gamble with strangers. Father Tim's face became grim, and he stared out across the front lawn. So there it was, the thing he wanted to know, the thing Joel Santos had refused to answer when he had questioned him. The picture of what had happened was clear, and he knew now why murder had been committed. The poor, miserable, misguided man. Money, the root of much evil, had caused him to commit murder. God have mercy on his soul. He looked down at Muscles. What Mr. Santos told you was good advice, if you must gamble. But my advice is, never start gambling. For a full five minutes, worked up over what he had just learned, Father Tim lectured Muscles on the evils of gambling and what it might lead to. It was nearly seven o'clock that evening when Jerry Laughlin phoned Father Tim. I didn't get around to all the stores, Father, but I got a partial list of names and types of telescopic sights. If you want them, I'll be glad to bring the list over to you. 
I'd like to see it very much, Jerry. Okay. You'll be surprised at one name on the list, Father. Really surprised. I don't think I will, Jerry. I might have been early this afternoon, but not now. Father Tim paused. But bring the list over. I'd like to see what kind of telescopic sight he used. He sat motionless for several long minutes after the phone call. There was no doubt in his mind now about the murderer of Samuel Blake and the assailant of John Linton. He must present the facts to Father Kearney and get his advice. But he must present them in an orderly fashion, or Father Kearney would become impatient. He walked slowly to the front hall and up the stairs. He'd sit in his room and think it all through first so that he would have it clear in his mind in order to be able to answer Father's questions. A soft breeze was moving the ruffled curtains at the north window as he entered his room. It seemed a bit cooler. Perhaps the long, hot spell would soon be broken. He moved the curtains aside and looked out across the rooftops in the valley below and out across the rolling hills to the west. He was tired. His mind, although not so confused now with the jumble of thoughts, was restless. He had much to do to plan for the activities of the fall, the youth clubs of which he was director, the opening of school, the beginning of the parish census, and his football team. He'd been taking too much time lately from his parish duties. He'd have to forget everything but his own work. Picking up his bravery, he walked slowly down the three flights of steps. He would go over to the church to kneel in the sanctuary and read his office, and say a prayer of thanks. He had much for which to be thankful. End of chapter 16